And today we uh, both continue and conclude the series that we've been in over the past several weeks called Lord, Teach Us to Pray. We're looking at the Lord's Prayer, Jesus' instruction for his disciples and for us on how to pray. And over this series, we've worked our way through each petition, a week at a time, exploring how this is far more than just a prayer that we pray, but really it is an education, an instruction, a crash course in prayer, and an immersion experience in the presence of God, an invitation into the presence of our loving Heavenly Father, the Creator and King of the universe, to come with confidence before His mighty and glorious throne. And today, we end this series on a high note, with temptation and evil. It's going to be fun, isn't it? (laughs) Temptation and evil. Wrapping up this series with these two petitions together. Because I believe that it is not an accident that Jesus wants us to bring these things before the Lord in prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Two petitions that are like two sides of the same coin. And that word, but, sort of tells us so. It says, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil instead. And to put it another way, to fall into temptation is to be led into evil. And so we pray against them in the name of Christ. And in much a similar way to last week, there's an important, if not kind of uncomfortable, admission in these petitions. Last week, Pastor Jim talked about how when we pray, forgive us our trespasses. The assumption is that we have sinned. When we pray, as we forgive those who trespass against us, is that we've been wronged and yet are called to forgive. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we recognize an uncomfortable but familiar truth. We pray this not only because we experience temptation, but because all too often we give into it, and evil is the result. And I know that the word evil kind of makes us tense up in our seats a little bit. But that's okay. Because as God's church, as the people of God's truth and his promise, we should be unafraid to call a thing what it is. And so as we get started today, I want to address a misconception regarding temptation and avoiding sin. It's a misconception that is based in a deceit that needs to be torn down and opposed vehemently. And here's what it is. It's that sin is actually more fun. Sin is more enjoyable. It's the misconception that a life of sin would actually be better 
that obeying God's word is somehow a less or more restrictive form of living and to do what we want when we want is the best and the highest way to live. And that's a horrible lie. I always thought it was funny that the word holy kind of has a negative connotation in the culture we live in. You know, when you hear the word holy, uh, perhaps, you know, anywhere outside the walls of a church, what kind of comes to mind? You know, holier than thou, right? You know, somebody who is trying to look good for others. And the connotation there is that it's sort of for show. Look at me. Look how good I am. Holier than thou. But I think that uh, the word holy kind of has this connotation uh, because we live and often, even as God's church, sometimes participate in with a culture that has been deceived and wants to continue to live in sin guilt-free, thinking that there are no consequences for it. And so we denigrate holiness and make light of sin. I think that's why a book like this exists. Uh, In case you can't read that text, it says, uh, Grandma Rose's book of sinfully delicious cakes, cookies, pies, cheesecakes, cake rolls, and pastries. Sinfully delicious. (laughs) Right? And then we look at the world around us, seeing the evil hurt, pain, and injustice, and want to imagine that it is the result of something other than sin. Wants to do the impossible, to separate sin from evil. Here's what Luther's explanation to this petition, lead us not into temptation, says. It says, God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. Luther points out, The heart of temptation is deception. So let's be clear today on why we resist temptation. It's not because we need to be so holy as to earn our own salvation. It is because temptation leads to sin and the fruit of sin is evil. And the wages of sin are death. It's death on that day. But it's also living under the oppressive weight of death right now. It's broken relationships with God and with others. And it's deceptive. It's what temptation is. It's like a fishing lure. It looks like what we want but it's worse. And yet over and over again, I don't know about you, but I take that big old bite and I think it's going to be something other than what it ultimately ends up being. 
There's a proverb that gets at the heart of this. Proverbs 16, verse 25. There is a way that seems right, but in the end it leads to death. You see, temptation is the tool of the enemy. And I think it's no coincidence that in the story of Scripture, the first one we encounter after creation is a story of the dire consequences of falling into temptation. The serpent convinces Adam and Eve that the fruit on that tree was better than the entire rest of Eden. And we've lived in the tragic aftermath ever since. And this deception, the lies, they drive a wedge between us and God's promises. They drive a wedge between us and his word. It leads us to enter the, entertain the question, just like Adam and Eve, did God really say it? It makes us question whether abundant and eternal and new life is really found in Christ or if something else that is better could be found if we did it our own way and were our own gods. And yet that way may seem right, but it leads to death. To pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is to pray that God would uproot the lies that have taken hold in our lives, that help us justify and cling to sin, but also to deliver us from the liar. In today's gospel text, Jesus is tempted by Satan. And it is God's word, God's promises, which are his guard and his weapon and his defense against the temptations of the devil. For each temptation that Satan throws at him, Jesus responds with God's word. Now Psalm 119.11 says this, says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin. You see, God's word and his promise not only remind us of our, uh, our sure and certain forgiveness and salvation, they also protect us, they inoculate us against temptation and deliver us from evil. And that's why we need to know what his word says. When we don't know what God's word says, and the enemy comes at us. Did God really say it? The only answer we actually have then is, I don't know. <laughs> so what did God really say? In the face of temptation, in the face of the lies of the enemy, what did God really say? In John 1.12, he said that you are his child. John 17, 11, that you are protected by the power of Jesus' name. 2 Corinthians 12, 10, that when you are weak, he is strong. Ephesians 1, 7, you are forgiven. 
and 2, 9 through 10, that you are wonderfully made by a creator who makes no mistakes and that you are made with a purpose and your life is not meaningless. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that God's spirit is in you. And uh, chapter 12, verse 4, that he has given you gifts in this life by that very same spirit. And Galatians 5, 22 through 23, says that that spirit of God alive in you bears fruit. Romans 8, 31, God is for you. He's on your side. And 839, that you are a conqueror, that you are victorious in Jesus Christ. You know, we don't have time to go through it all today because there's plenty more because this is a big book, right? But that's why we gather together each week to have God's promise, to have his word and his gospel spoken over us, to be renewed and refreshed by his word and strengthened in grace through the sacraments. It's why we gather together in fellowship groups and grow groups throughout the week so that we can encourage one another, that we can delight in God's word together and speak God's truth over one another, that we could pray for each other and with each other. You see, I joked at the beginning that we're going to end this series on a high note with temptation and evil. But we really are ending on a high note because temptation and evil don't get the last word. Because God's truth overcomes lies. His goodness overcomes evil. His light overcomes the darkness. And in Christ, life overcomes death. The good news is that evil does not win, nor does the evil one. In fact, they've already been defeated. And so when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil... We are praying the sure and certain victory of God over our lives. His victory over sin, death, and the power of the devil purchased at great price through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And so we ask God to continue in his power to be victorious in our lives, to be strong where we are weak, to give us the power to resist temptation and to be delivered from evil. Now, as we close today, I want to touch a little bit on what may have been the big elephant in the room for this entire series. You may have noticed as we read through the different gospel texts that contain Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer, we kind of add something to it, don't we? We add a little ending to the end. And maybe you've wondered, you know, are are Pastor Joe and Pastor Jim just going to not even talk about it? And we're just going to pretend like it's not there. So, why do we say it? 
You know, the earliest evidence shows that this ending was adopted perhaps within uh, the first generation of disciples after Jesus' death, suggesting that it was a practice the apostles themselves perhaps instituted, likely as part of this prayer being incorporated into the communal worship life of the church. And more likely than not, it was adapted from this text in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 through 13, which say this, O Lord, you are great, mighty, majestic, magnificent, glorious, and sovereign over all earth and sky. You, Lord, have dominion and exalt yourself as the ruler of all. You are the source of wealth and honor. You are the ruler over all. You possess strength and might to magnify and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your majestic name. But that isn't actually why we say it. That's just what we say. But here's why. Thine is the kingdom, because God is king. He's the Lord over all of creation, and he is the one to whom we pray. Thine is the power, because God has the power to answer prayers. He has the desire to hear and the power to answer. We do not pray to an impotent God, but a God of majesty and power and might. And the glory, forever and ever, because one day, everyone, and I mean everyone, all of creation, in fact, will bow and give glory to God. That one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And for us, We don't have to wait for that day. We do it today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God of majesty and power and might. And so when we pray to you, give us the faith to trust that you are the God who answers prayer, the God who has the power to deal with the things that we lay before you. And Lord, we remember today to come before you and ask for the power to resist temptation and ask you to deliver us from evil and from the evil one. Lord, you have the power and you can and will do it. Amen. Please stand.